The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Good morning, everyone. Sorry, I'm not Ryan or Katie, so we're going to do... I'm the backup to the backup for announcements, so good morning. Um, Just a few announcements to walk through uh, before we take our break prior to service. So first, the Source Women's Retreat is happening July 14th through 16th. I like those woos. That's awesome. Uh, That'll be in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, So if you haven't registered for your spot, you can do so on the website. Please don't miss out on this chance for awesome fellowship, the opportunity to grow deeper in the word. Um, And if you have any questions, please see Sarah Taylor. Uh, youth group. How often do I get to announce my own activity? This is fun. Um, we'll be meeting this coming Sunday on the 10th. Uh, so middle high schoolers, you're welcome. Uh, if you're wanting to invite guests, you're very much welcome to do so as well. Just let myself or Brett know if you're planning to make it. Uh, Easter, just two weeks away. So many woos today. I love this. Um, if you have not RSVP'd for the brunch after service, please do so. Um, and any guests that you plan on bringing. Uh, Easter is always a wonderful time to bring folks to church, and there's like a whole brunch at the awesome sanctuary afterwards, so what better opportunity to feed some folks, teach them about Jesus, and invite them to church. Um, While you're at it, uh, if you could sign up to bring a dish to pass uh, so we can make this a real celebratory feast. All the dishes uh, can be stored either downstairs in the kitchen or dropped off with Nancy. Uh, at the sanctuary events prior to the brunch or or prior to church service. Um, And you can leave any heating or cooling instructions with Nancy. Uh, Last, we hope to see you all at prayer tonight in the basement, name pending, um, from 6 to 7. All are welcome. So, uh, yeah, at at this time, if you guys want to take a break, uh, say hi to some folks, drop your kiddos off in the ministry uh, with the children's room, excuse me, words are hard, and we'll see you back here in just a couple minutes. Thanks. reading scripture for us this morning, um, and it's from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the reading of God's word. Good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. God, we're here this morning because we want to hear you speak. We thank you for these words in front of us. Um, for many of us, these very words have, have already made a big difference in our lives. And we want to celebrate that this morning. And we also want to pray that your spirit would teach us would further draw out the meaning of these words. We know your words are infinite in depth. So give us eyes to see even clearer. Give us understanding of these things that are from your very lips, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are a lot of different things that can draw us into a good story, if you think about it. It could be the setting, like maybe... All the details are described, you know, in a really intricate manner. Or maybe it's a character. Maybe it's a character that's just so compelling and you're like, wow, I feel like I already know this person. I've got to keep reading. I've got to keep watching so that I can see what's going to happen here. But usually we're drawn to a story because there's a problem that needs to be solved. And there's a problem that's, that's just like, whoa, how is this going to resolve? I have to wait to see where the resolution is. And in fact, some of the most gripping stories are the ones where the evil seems darkest and most inescapable, where there's some sort of sinister spell or hex or curse at work. And even some kids' movies or lighter adventure movies go here. You can think about Harry Potter or Beauty and the Beast or The Mummy or Pirates of the Caribbean. But then there are novels and more realistic dramas that, that feel even more, whoa, true to life. Think of stories where there's a curse of madness or of depression or a curse placed on a family such that they always end up destroying themselves or there's this dark secret at work that's just bound to catch up with them in the end. Well, if you get to really know the Bible, you quickly come to see that every story worth telling in this world is a shadow and a reminder of the one great story, God's story. And I'm afraid that the curse placed on this world and on this large family that we call humanity is actually even darker than those other stories and more real than these examples. And we may not realize it every day because there's still so much common grace at work. There's so many good things in this broken world that can distract us from the underlying decay 
But we still see it, don't we? We still see the curse at work. We see addictions, infidelities, abuses, brutality, diseases, deceit, schemes, injustice, jealousy, hostility. I could go on. Because we personally are under a powerful curse called original sin, which has led to further curses of futility and corruption throughout the world around us. By God's grace, we finished the book of 1 Corinthians last week. And before we get into our next big thing, we're just going to take three weeks to do a, a Lent Easter series called The Mission of Jesus. So we're thinking about what did Jesus come to accomplish? We want to meditate on that during these weeks. And our text for this morning, it may be a familiar text to you, but we're actually going to focus mostly just on verses 9 through 15 specifically on the thought that Jesus came to absorb the curse that belonged to us. Jesus came to absorb our curse. Now in the text, the scene is a nighttime conversation. It's probably still in Jesus' first year of public ministry. And Nicodemus, a renowned teacher of the scriptures, he's, he's kind of digging all the miraculous signs that Jesus was accomplishing. But he didn't quite know what box to put Jesus in. So he addresses Jesus as rabbi, teacher, probably just a collegial term that Nicodemus would have expected Jesus to use with him as well. And Nicodemus says, you know, clearly God is with you, Jesus. He has admiration for Jesus, but he's still kind of putting him in the box of, you know, similar to a prophet at the very greatest. He doesn't ask anything explicitly of Jesus, but we gather that the implied question is, who are you then, Jesus? What are you up to? Nicodemus, whose name means victory of the people, he was, like everyone else, waiting for the Messiah. As a Pharisee, one of the experts in the Jewish law, he would have, he would have presupposed that, well, whatever good would come to the people of God, from God, I'm one of the people who belong to that, you know? The popular religious thought in Jesus' day was that pretty much all Jews would be admitted to the kingdom of God unless they somehow deliberately rejected God or committed some truly heinous crime. And maybe some of us think that same way. You know, we think that I grew up in church. I represent a certain Christian heritage. I'm respected and generally a good person. I'd like to think that, you know, I stand for what God stands for in this world. I must be part of the people who will benefit from whatever Jesus is up to. And so perhaps we're just as caught off guard as Nicodemus would have been when his opening statement of admiration of Jesus is met with this jarring response. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, it's kind of like saying, dude, listen up. This is for real, okay? And he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God, that means to finally share in all of the good things of God forever. Instead of being in a position to take that for granted... Or to ask Jesus to identify himself. Nicodemus actually needs to reassess his own identity before God. Jesus is saying we don't stand before God as participants in the community of life unless we've done business with God directly as individuals and experienced a miraculous gift of new life as an individual. So what's required isn't just to show up and wait for God to, um, to make the world fit for people. But rather, we need to humble ourselves and to ask God to make us fit for his realm. 
And this is the central message of the passage that was read this morning, that everyone, everyone, Nicodemus, you, me, the person who, um, who is really buttoned up and, and does good things, or the person whose life is kind of a mess, it doesn't matter, all of us, all of us must be given new life from the Spirit of God if we are to share in the good things of God forever. There's no distinction based on our behavior or on our pedigree. Each one must be born again. What does that mean in verse 5 when Jesus explains you must be born of water and of the Spirit? Well, some have taken that to mean like you have to be born both naturally and of the Spirit of God. But there's no ancient sources elsewhere that picture natural birth as from water. So that's probably barking up the wrong tree. Others have taken the water to refer to baptism. Like, oh, I have to pass through the water of baptism and have something happen from the Spirit. But this is before Christian baptism was even established. Nicodemus would have no category for that. And so it's, um, that's not likely where Jesus is going either. The most likely explanation is that these two terms, water and spirit, are both describing the one new birth. We must be born again, and that new birth is by the water and the spirit. What does that mean? Well, keep in mind that Jesus is talking to an expert in the scriptures. So Nicodemus' mind would have raced to Ezekiel 36, a passage that's basically prophesying about the new covenant. And starting in verse 25, it reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. So it's all there. The imagery of water to cleanse us from impurity and idolatry. And God's very spirit to change our hearts of stone toward God and make them hearts of flesh. It's, it's a new creation. It also points us back to really the act of creation in Genesis 1 where we saw the, the spirit hovering over the water in the very beginning. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you must be cleansed from the things you devote yourself to instead of God. You must be given a new heart that responds to God. And only the Holy Spirit can do this act of new creation. And we can find this language of the new birth actually nine more times in other books of the New Testament. So this is a really important concept. To be born again or to be born from above, it doesn't just mean that we have to somehow condition ourselves to be more in line with God. It means that we need a complete change. We need a miracle to happen whereby we're given a new life. Has that miracle happened for you? For many people, there's a clear moment when suddenly their whole perspective was different and and when everything they defined themselves by and everything they hoped in changed. For others, it comes in a more subtle way, you know, gradually it seems. But then looking back, the transformation is still undeniable. Have you been born again? If not, what would that look like? What does that mean for Nicodemus or for us? To get to that, Let's look a bit closer, starting in verse 9. So Nicodemus is taken back, uh, taken aback by this whole category of the new birth, and, and his response is somewhat incredulous. He says, how can these things be? 
And Jesus picks up on that, and he's, a, he's firm, and he's, he almost sounds a little bit scornful. Like, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, when Jesus says you in verses 11 and 12, he's actually using the plural form of you. So it's likely that Nicodemus viewed himself as sort of a representative from the, the Jewish um, ruling council. And so Jesus wants to challenge all of them with this teaching. He wants, he wants to treat Nicodemus like a class of people that he represented. And so he's saying to these teachers of the law, he's saying, look, you're not even understanding how people on earth can approach God. So what makes you think that you could understand if, I, if we talk about, you know, the heavenly signs that you mentioned in verse 2 or, or if you want to talk about the wonders of the coming kingdom? You have to start with a new birth. And people today aren't much different from Nicodemus. We think that God owes the world an explanation or that if he's really active in the world, why wouldn't he make that totally clear to everyone? And this is a window into God's response to that, that if we haven't believed what has been revealed, if we won't come to him in humility and need as the foundation of our interactions with him, then how would any further revelation be useful to us? Before the new birth, we simply can't process the truths of God's spirit. Nicodemus' problem is not that he doesn't understand Jesus. It's that at this point, he simply doesn't believe the need for what Jesus is describing. Nor does he yet accept Jesus' testimony as authoritative. Doubtless, Nicodemus had taught people about seeking the kingdom of God. He had taught them about obedience and devotion to God. But this is something different. It's not a path that's in our control It's a gift that comes from above. And that is quite offensive to our religious sensibilities. But Jesus doesn't want to leave Nicodemus or us just offended or confused. He wants to show us what he means and what we must do. He wants us to accept that it is his authority and not our religious intuitions that we must trust. And that's where verses 13 to 15 come in. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So verse 13 establishes Jesus as the sole authority to tell us what we need. Look, Nicodemus, you've, you've never been in God's presence. You've never ascended up there. You haven't considered the vantage point of heaven? What makes you think that you know the needs of your soul or the way to God? Just because of your years on this earth or because of your past religious experiences? Because of how you compare to other people? Now, here before you stands the Son of Man, the only one who has descended from heaven, the only one who is able to speak into these matters. And there's a lot packed into this simple statement where Jesus calls himself son of man who is descended. First, the reader of John's gospel would be reminded of two chapters earlier at the end of chapter one. Jesus told his new disciple Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, 
you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that statement in John 1 is a reference back to Genesis to a vision experienced by the patriarch Jacob about 1900 years earlier in which the angels were ascending and descending on a ladder or stairway. And Jesus is telling Nathaniel and he's telling Nicodemus that he is that pictured portal to God. Jesus is the locus of what God and his angelic agents are doing in the world. The mission of Jesus is what it's all about. And Jesus is the place, so to speak, where mankind can access the divine. He came down from God, and he would return after his earthly ministry to sit down in the throne room of heaven. He also, in both this passage and elsewhere in John, is referring to himself as the Son of Man, and that is a very, very loaded term. If you look at the book of Ezekiel, the term is used of the prophet himself, sort of as a representative of humanity in general, in, viewed in their, their humility and their frailty. But most notably, the term Son of Man is used in Daniel chapter 7. I'll start reading in verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. One implication then of son of man is... Nicodemus, you want to know about the kingdom of God? You've come to the right place because God the Father will give the kingdom to Jesus. He will give him all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the, the rabbi of modest appearance that Nicodemus is sitting with and, and talking casually at night. Nicodemus, if you know what's good for you, you will accept his testimony. He is the son of man. But what about the other aspect of the son of man? a representative of humanity pictured in humility and frailty. Well, that's where Jesus turns next, saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoa, 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 what's going on? Again, keep in mind that Jesus is speaking with an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, so we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament for, I think, like the fourth or fifth time already this morning. Um. Jesus is referring to an account in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. Nicodemus would have been very familiar with it, and it has to do with the rebellion of the wilderness generation. It's just six verses, so I'll read it for you. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Not your everyday occurrences, so let me summarize. God was in the very midst of his people in the wilderness. He was leading them to the promised land, but they despised his provision for, I think, like the 14th time. And his just anger, he, and in his just anger, he sends these poisonous serpents among the people to bite them. Why serpents? Why snakes? Maybe to jog their memories about another time when God's people first despised his provision and a serpent's work led to death. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it resulted in a curse that led to death, corrupting their lives, corrupting all of creation. And just as in the Garden of Eden, just as in the wilderness, just as in Nicodemus' context, so also today we grumble and we rebel and we live under the curse and we are by nature separated from the source of life. But God, in his mercy, provided a way of restoration, a way to remove the poisonous venom from the circulation of our souls. In Moses' day, the symbol of the curse itself, the serpent, was to be placed on a pole, and all who looked up at it would be healed. And so they did, and so they were. Very simple. But what does that teach us about God? Or about salvation? Why is Jesus referencing this account? Is the point that just as God provided this magic talisman back then to heal the people from snake bites, so he would also provide a magic talisman through a man on a cross? No. Although many treat the cross or other physical relics like that, that if I just wear a cross on a necklace or, or have one hanging on a wall, then I'll somehow be protected or purified. If I just touch or kiss this object, I'll be better off. But sorry, it doesn't work like that. It's not some sort of crude magic. What's needed ultimately is not an emblem of a serpent or an emblem of a man on the cross. What's needed is trust in the God who heals and saves. It's trust in God. It's being, right, being in right relationship with him, the only one who can deliver from death. But some made that mistake, even with the serpent on the pole, thinking that it was like just sacred magic. And the, this actual physical bronze serpent was preserved for over 700 years after it was needed by Moses' generation. And so in 2 Kings chapter 18, we read about um, King Hezekiah. He's, he just took over. He's cleaning the kingdom of idolatry. And so it says, He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has, had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So, just a side note, if you're trusting in any physical religious objects to protect or to bless you, if an object and not God himself is your hope, I'd encourage you to destroy those idols too, to force yourself to do business with God directly. So the question remains, why a serpent on a pole? What does a serpent on a pole, what does a man on a cross show us about our salvation, about the God who saves. Three things. First, 
I think it shows us the extent of the curse. The extent of the curse. I have sinned, and I must die. There's, there's no way around it. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed his one command to them, they would surely die. And so they did, and so shall we. And that departure from this life should rightly be a departure from everything good forever. And seeing the poisonous snake reminded the people of that. And picturing Jesus dying on the cross should remind us of that. The inescapable cost of sin. But second, we see the possibility of substitution. Because the curse is now up there on the pole, on the cross. It's no longer here with me. Jesus is cursed in my place. The Son of Man came to embody the curse for our healing, and even though this conversation with Nicodemus happened long before the cross, Jesus knew where he was headed. It wasn't accidental that he ended up at the cross. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must be lifted up. It was the determined purpose of God. Why? Why must Jesus be lifted up? So that there could be an exchange. So that his righteousness could be exchanged for our curse. Galatians 3, 13-14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He is cursed instead of us. So completely did Jesus absorb the curse for his people that 2 Corinthians says, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Substitution. And if we have become the righteousness of God, well then, even if our mortal bodies break down in this still-cursed world, it will only be the doorway to experiencing more and more of the goodness of God forever. And third, with the pull, with the cross, we see the necessity of trusting God's saving power for ourselves. By God's provision in Moses' day, healing was provided for life after the curse. It was graciously given to those bitten by the serpents. Well, why then should it be unexpected by Nicodemus or by us that the same God in Jesus would graciously provide healing for all who are infected by the first serpent's poison? This is what the Son of Man accomplished when he was lifted up. But the healing only comes to those who look. Deliverance from the curse is a gift. It's, it's healing that has to come to you directly from the Spirit of God. I can't give you a step-by-step, do this, do this, do this, then you'll have saving faith. No, it doesn't work like that. But how does belief happen? How does one come to faith? I think one purpose of the snake on the pole is to show us that salvation happens when we look intently and truly consider what he has shown us in Jesus and in his word. That's when the Spirit of God can open our eyes to show us 
the beauty of Jesus, the glory of the gospel. So stop and look. Really, really look. I'm going to read you an account of one man's coming to faith just like that. Charles Spurgeon, he was a brilliant preacher in the late 1800s in London, and he actually came to faith under the impromptu ministry of a totally uneducated man. He remembers, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair even now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. When I could walk no further, I turned down a court and came to a little church. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The normal minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. And so a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was forced to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was from Isaiah. Look unto me. And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in this text. He began like this. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Aye, he said, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he'd got about that length and managed to spin out for ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. And then he gazed at me under the gallery and said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I wasn't accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. But it was a good blow struck, and he continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive preacher could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And there and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. So that's Spurgeon's story, and it's a glimpse of what it means for us to look up and see our curse embodied on a pole to see with eyes of faith the Son of Man lifted up. The Greek verb for lifted up, it it occurs four times in the Gospel of John, and it always combines two different notions. One is just just physically, Jesus was lifted up to, to a high place on a cross. But there's a second connotation that he was lifted up in the sense that he was glorified. He was magnified. He was raised in our estimations at that moment when he was on the cross 
that is the moment of his exaltation. And so the message is that while the world sees death on a cross as pitiful and disgraceful, and it is, and yet one with eyes to see will realize that on the cross, on the cross, of course, in tandem with the resurrection, this is the moment of glorious triumph. Have you seen Jesus high and lifted up? Do you perceive the cross as glorious, as the very triumph of a gracious God over everything evil, over the curse that's in you and on this world? The emphasis of this whole section and really of the whole gospel of John is believe. Believe. At the end of the book of John, we read, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what conversation, if any, have you been having with Jesus? As with Nicodemus, the burden isn't on Jesus himself to prove himself. The burden is on you to look up to him out of desperate need and out of a desire to belong to him and not to ourselves anymore. To find life in his name alone. Have you experienced the new birth? Has Jesus absorbed the curse for you? Or are you still defenseless against the poison of sin? Are its ominous effects controlling you and choking you and always catching up with you, sure to bind you into the darkness? Look in faith at the Son of Man lifted up. He's on the cross for you. Maybe you've been coming here to this source for years. Maybe you've heard things about this, but it's still a foreign concept. Maybe you're intrigued. Maybe you're not sure what to think. Please, let's talk. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's, there's nothing to fear. The only thing to fear is being too afraid to take Jesus at his word. And if you have been born again, thank God for that new life again this morning and keep looking to Jesus. Because the good news that saves us is the same good news that keeps us grounded in our new life and keeps us free to live for him and for his kingdom. So let the sight in your mind's eye of the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, let that prepare your heart to celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in a deeper way maybe than ever before. Our God, we thank you for these glorious truths, and we, we thank you for your word, just the, the depth and wisdom of your word, that it's, it's all connected. There's, there's no accidents here on these pages. And we see your plan going back centuries, millennia, into eternity past. We thank you for how you have designed our salvation. Lord, we come to you. We come to you, the only one who can absorb the curse for us. Some of us need to come to you for the first time. Some of us need to remember, remember the source of our salvation. Lord, I pray that you do a work in each one's life this morning and that you would grant new life in Christ, that you would give the new birth today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we transition to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, this is another way that we can look at Christ in faith. 
we can have the, the eyes of our hearts opened and, and remember again the glory of the cross, that that is the time of our salvation, that is the moment of Christ's exaltation. So I hope that this is a celebratory time for you who have the new birth, that you would know that we owe Jesus everything. You can go to one of the tables in back and get the elements and then come back to your seats and we'll partake together. <laughs>